Hello, my name is Rodrigo. This is Ryan. And this is the Ether Podcast. And today we are discussing Mark 7 verses 1 through 23. Uh, Jesus, after performing a series of miracles and wandering around the countryside, now turns his attention, or actually he is forced to turn his attention to the Pharisees and his teachings. And they have a discussion about what seems to be the law and doctrine. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Yeah. Yeah, it's the first time that we've really seen these guys show up in a major way. Uh, we've seen them show up in a lot of the other gospels, but this is the first time in Mark that they get they get the hammer of Jesus dropped upon them. That's right. I mean, there was some early on, but it's been a while. Like it's been a few chapters since they've shown they've shown themselves. Yeah, it's nice to have that uh, the enemy come back in. You know, it provides a little bit of angst, a little bit of tension in the story. I like having them around from time to time, if nothing for else, for uh, comedic relief. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know, it's amazing that uh, the, the image that these guys have taken on in Christianity, when you think about who these guys actually are and what it required of someone to become a Pharisee. And you listen to some of the things that Paul used to describe himself as a Pharisee, that these dudes, they knew their material inside and out and yes i i love how how there's this this back and forth banter and um back and forth uh discussion with jesus where these guys come in and and with all this this pomp and all this uh circumstance with all the their their disciples with them kind of traveling around and even one of the the first verses of chapter seven says that these guys came from Jerusalem. And so these guys That's are right. they sending the big pursuing them down and, and, and showing up. And so um, it's cool to see them here because what we've seen in the first six chapters, I think just to kind of bring everybody back up to speed, um, which is helpful to me just to kind of remember where are we at and where have we come from the first sure. six chapters, Mark has made his claim and supported his claim that Jesus is God and that, that those two titles go together, that Jesus is the Messiah. He is God. He's from God. He's of God. And he's going to be the savior of the world. He is the savior of the world. And he's given us all these teachings that Jesus has laid out. He's shown us the reaction of the people who, even with these, these Pharisee studs around, they're looking at Jesus and saying, this guy is like nothing we've ever seen before that we haven't heard anyone preach like this. He's given us new insights and information. And this guy is indescribable. And he also lays out a number of miracles that Jesus did basically to say, you know, no mere mortal could be doing the things that we're seeing Jesus do. This guy is the Christ. And what we see is this shift in the, in Mark, where there's a lot more interactions that hopefully now, reader, you understand that Jesus is, is God. Now let's look at some of the more detailed interactions. And so that's what we've been seeing is story after story after story of Jesus' deity put into the spotlight. Right. And we've also had this sub-story where Jesus is developing his disciples. He's got his guys around him now. He's done a couple of things with them. He's taught him a couple of lessons. And 
they're with him now. Um, it said in chapter six that these guys were going to be staying around with him. And so theoretically, all 12 of these guys, he's got in tow when this discussion goes down. And the focus of this story in particular is that Jesus is going to teach his disciples and show his disciples and show us the readers the difference between human religious tradition and the authoritative word of God. And the whole idea of this chapter is that it's so easy for us to confuse the two. We can talk circles and circles around the scriptures and twist it into saying something that it doesn't really say and get ourselves tangled up. And Jesus does an amazing job of cutting through those those ropes that, that we've ensnared ourselves with by, by kind of weaving new stories out of what the Bible tells us. And he says, let's get back to the word of God. There is one authoritative word and it is the word of God. It's not coming from these guys because these guys have had uh, the law of Moses, you know, for nearly 2000 years by this point. And they've been sitting around drinking coffee and just going over these things and figuring out what does this mean? You know, they talk about the idea of, of work and not doing work on the Sabbath. Well, when God says, don't do work, what does that exactly mean? How much work is work? And they come up with their laws. Um, They said, don't light a fire. Don't carry more than one stick of wood. You know, don't work, walk more than X number of steps. And so they had, they, had created all these different rules and laws. And then they were holding people to them with this expectation of not only is what God says important, but let us tell you what he really meant rather than just taking him at at his word. Yes. And you do bring up something that I think is very important for uh, our audience. And I think even for us to remind ourselves, the Pharisees have a really bad reputation. But that whole sect of uh, Jews, that whole set, that whole way of teaching was really born out of a group of people that were seeking to be really righteous. Yeah, totally. The, the, sort of the, the Pharisee, the Pharisaical sect was born out of really good intentions. And by the time Jesus shows up, I think a lot of these good intentions have become um, a very strict, very oppressive religion that Judaism was never meant to become. And, you know, case in point, Jesus and his disciples at the beginning of this chapter, all they're doing is they're eating and they pounce on Jesus. And they go, hey, why, why are your disciples eating while they're unclean? And basically what they're expecting is that they wash their hands and that everything they eat on is washed and that everything that the food was cooked with was cooked, cooked with was washed. And Jesus, interestingly enough, doesn't even answer their question. Yeah, just kind of passes it by. Right. And, and Soto tells them, you have a very good way. Oh, because a key thing, what the Pharisees say is, why do you go against the tradition of our fathers? Um, what they're talking about is that there was an oral tradition of laws and religious practices that supposedly was given to Moses 
at the same time that the law had been given to him, that the Pharisees saw on the same level as the law. So this oral tradition that for for most Jews was just, uh, I guess, really for lack of a better way to put it, great advice. The Pharisees took it as law and they took it many, many more steps and made it a very strict law. So what they're referring to isn't necessarily what's in the Torah. What they're referring to is some of these oral traditions, which is then why Jesus says, hey, you have a way to reduce the law to nothing for the sake of following the traditions Mm -hmm. of your fathers. And then he talks about the Corbin, which in of itself is a super interesting topic. Well, it's interesting because even still modern Jews are following a lot of these, these traditions and the things that people have, have handed down for years and years. And it's amazing the hold that these have taken in the lives of, of the Jewish community. Uh, so you've got the Mishnah, which is this collection of material that, that embodied that whole oral tradition. And this thing's monstrous. I mean, right. this, is, this is built out of the opinions of different Pharisees. And as you go and you look at it, you say, these are the, the sayings of this rabbi. These are the sayings of this rabbi. And that those are, at least to the most orthodox Jews, those hold that same authoritative role in their lives. And so they're looking at those and studying those things out just as much as, as the Torah itself. Yes. And, uh, and just uh, let us explain what's going on here with this whole issue of Jesus basically alludes to the fact that uh, people are withholding money from their parents. And so just to be clear, the law makes it very clear that uh, children need to take care of their parents. That was actually in the law. At the same time, from this oral tradition, there's this law basically called the Corbin, which all it was, it was that money designated for the temple wasn't to be touched for anything else. And again, at the heart of this is the idea that what you decide to give to God shouldn't be used for anything else, which is actually something that we, even today on, in Christianity, when we talk about offering money to God, we talk about it sort of in the same terms. Like the whole idea of giving God the first fruits and whatever is it like, don't, when you get paid, you take that money aside and the money that you're going to give your offering for church, nothing else touches it, even if you're going yeah. hungry. And, and so sort of the same idea, but basically what had happened is that people sort of took advantage of this loophole and would uh, call Corbin on anything that would have, they would have otherwise given to their parents, meaning that they used this tradition to sort of go around the fact that they were supposed to take care of their parents. And that's basically what Jesus is reproaching them is, hey, you're using this tradition and it's superseding the actual law is basically what Jesus is reproaching the Pharisees. Yeah. It's like putting it in a trust. You know, I got two girls and I want to take care of them. And so I put money aside for them. And in the event of something, hopefully college being that something that they'll, they'll receive (laughs) some money. 
Um, <laughs> but yeah, let me give it to somebody else and I can't touch it for a time. But after a certain amount of time goes by, those funds become available to me. I can take it back. And so you get this, them taking advantage of, of system and saying, man, I could, I could hold on to my money and not have to give it to anybody other than myself when I need it. Yes. And, you know, I think at the heart of this is something that we've been talking about and it's a recurring um, idea that we've talked about over and over again in our podcast. And it's this whole idea that um, we kind of stink at defining what morality is and God is a lot better at it because how this whole passage that we're talking about ends is with Jesus base is with Jesus saying, Hey, is not what comes into your body that makes you unclean is what comes out of it. Out of it, out of it comes deceit, out of it comes lies, out of it comes lust, it comes pride, all this right. other stuff. And basically there's this juxtaposition between the Pharisees who were super concerned about keeping all these superficial traditions that in reality never really ever dealt with a problem, which is, hey, uh, keeping the Corbin or washing your hands and washing your dishes ultimately don't deal with the real problem, which is your right. inside. And, and again, there's this just a position between the law, which deals with a person's inside and these oral traditions that actually didn't. And what Jesus is saying is God is a lot better than you at defining what morality is because your oral tradition gives loopholes to people with bad hearts. And guess what? Those people with bad hearts actually take advantage of that and they don't take yeah. care of their family. Yeah. I think we as a, a society, maybe even more than a society, we as, as a species like practicals. We like having specific ways of obeying a rule or a law. Like you give me a rule or a law, you say something as, as, um, open-ended as, you know, when you're on the highway, you shouldn't speed. That's a pretty open-ended law. Well, what does that mean? Like what, what is speeding and what is, what's a highway? Right. Does it have stop signs? Does it have lights on it? How many lanes constitutes a highway is 50 miles an hour considered speeding? Is it a hundred miles an hour? I, I want you to specify exactly what you mean. Um, rather than than adopting this attitude of saying i'm understanding the heart of god and i'm pursuing the heart of god and it's not that i'm trying to live by a set of specific rules and principles it's i want his heart to become my heart and i want to live right with that as my defining way of living my life you know, my wife and I are currently going through this marriage course where the whole goal of it is to bring us closer together. And in a number of these classes, they, they remind us about, you got to start with this, some of these practicals, do X, Y, and Z, talk to your spouse and come up with some of these rules. What makes you feel loved? Is it when we have 
a date every week? Do you need a date every other week, once a month? What does it look like for you? And right. it feels very stiff and it feels very mechanical in the beginning. But the idea is to, to get beyond that, to not necessarily live in this idea of, well, you said two dates. I'm only doing two dates. It's no, my <laughs> goal is to make her feel loved. It's to make her feel taken care of. It's to make her feel special and considered and thought of and to, to have in my heart the desire to know her, to please her, to take care of her, to make her feel loved and not to say, all right, two dates a month. That's what I'm aiming for. I mean, how sad would it be if she and I die at, you know, 80 years old and we've had two dates every month because that's what she asked for right. when we were in our thirties. <laughs> um, that it, there's just something that's missing and there's that, that natural piece doesn't exist. And I think what we see a lot of people doing through the old Testament is the same kind of thing. When we do it today too, what exactly are you talking about? What does that look like? You gave me a right. rule. You gave me an expectation. How do I meet that expectation exactly? And it's understandable, but at the same time, it really misses the point. I think. I feel like we have a tendency of making these rules. Ultimately, that's not necessarily the spirit. I think even what of what God means by a lot of His commands. I think even this idea, and I think well, I'm getting a little bit ahead of, of ourselves, but I think the perfect example of this is the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, like, hey, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him, like, hey, you have to do all of these things. And he says, like, I've done them all. And he tells him, well, go and sell all of your possessions. See, that's the thing. Like, there's nothing in the law that says that you have to sell your possessions and give it to the poor. But his reluctance to do so basically brings his, his, I guess, his heart of greed his real love for money, his lack of care for the poor. And a lot, again, if, if it were a checklist, this guy would have been a champion. But Jesus really cares for his heart. He really cares for what's inside. He really cares because, again, what defiles us, what makes us sinful, what makes us uh, dirty, if you will, in the eyes of God, isn't necessarily what people see but it's what comes from inside. And I think um, one of the things I think that we need to be very, I think one of the, the smell tests when reading the Bible is that if, if there is something that challenges the core of our being, like that challenges the very core of our character, then we're reading it right. If there's something that we can boil down to, to a, a check mark, then I feel like we're doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think even we do this um, from a very talking about traditions, I think our society in any society, we sort of create these traditions and these laws and these sayings that sound very wise and religious and godly, but they also keep us from, doing what God calls us to do. And to me, the perfect, the perfect example and the okay. epitome of this is the saying uh, that God helps those ah, who help a very themselves. Popular one. 
Yes. And at face value, you could see the wisdom and the truth in it. But first of all, the, the more egregious thing, and I'll get to the second more egregious thing of this, but the more egregious thing of this saying is that it, it, it is completely against the doctrine of grace that we find in the Bible. Because as a matter of fact, what the Bible teaches us is that God doesn't help those who help themselves, is that he helps us in spite of ourselves. Because nobody, none of us, not a single one of us can do enough okay. to help so ourselves. Let's back up a second. When would you use the phrase, God helps those who helps themselves? When might that come up? <sighs> well, I think, and again, this is the second more egregious thing, and I'm glad you asked this question. When I've seen it come up a lot of times is, for example, I'm driving with somebody and homeless person is at the light asking for money. And actually this happened to me more than once where I will lower down my window and give some money to this person. And the person next to me tells me, I'm not giving that person any money. And I'm like, why? And they usually say, well, that person probably did drugs and they probably didn't made a horrible mistake to be in that position. And God helps those who help themselves. And I've always been shocked by that. I've always been, and I'm not saying uh, that I'm perfect because I do other things, but this particular one, again, I don't know. I, that is not the heart of helping the poor. That is not the heart. You know, in, in the gospel themselves, there's, there's, there's very few cases that Jesus helps somebody who is actually completely righteous or who's there because you know, even his followers. I mean, he one of his one of his disciples is a tax collector. The other one was a zealot, like an actual guy that went around stabbing people. I mean, <laughs> he he picks a. He, I mean, he, his his company. He doesn't pick perfect people. He helps very imperfect people. Mm -hmm. And even like you have to ask a question. You know, when Paul is on his way uh, to persecute some Christians and in jail some and murder others, and you know, the light appears from heaven. He wasn't helping himself. You know, Moses, when we find them, he's been, he's been running away from... The Bible is full of stories in which God chooses to use people and bless people who don't necessarily help themselves. And again, I think I add face value when people say God, God helps those who help themselves. Is there some truth to that? Yes. But to use that as an excuse to not help somebody in need, I think it's not the heart of well, the I think mind. even just going back to the beginning of Mark and, and chapter two, where Jesus is telling people that it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And even here in chapter seven, where we're reading that who is Jesus confronting and challenging? The people who do help themselves, the people who have worked their right. lives to grow closer to God, that those are the people who have helped themselves and they're the exact ones that Jesus is confronting and shutting down. And it's the ones later on that, that people are shocked to see that he associates with them, whether it's Zacchaeus, this guy who's cheated people out of money. And he says, I'm going to come and I'm going to stay at your house. And people are like bewildered. Why would you do this? That, Here's a man who's taking advantage of other people. Well, 
as Jesus says, it's not the healthy that who need a doctor, but the sick. I help right. those who are unable to help themselves. Absolutely. And that's mm-hmm. all of us. You know, and the other one, <laughs> the other one that's a little bit like this is the whole uh, teach a man to fish and he'll never go hungry. And again, I think it's sort of the, the same spirit of, of like, hey, if a man actually had some skills, he wouldn't be in need. To which I always say, listen, teach a man how to fish and he'll never hung- go hungry unless there's no fish. Because, I mean, and, and again, I'm not trying to get political here, all right? But over the past 10 years, it was a time that we went through a recession in which a lot of people lost right. their jobs. And some of those people, Ryan, were very skilled people. It's not like when a company is trying to save themselves and what they do is fire a bunch of people, it's not like they're firing unskilled people. Many times they fire very skilled people. And when you have a bunch of companies that do this at the same time, there's a bunch of people that know how to fish, but no fish. And so to look at a person that's sort of like, down and to off the bat assume that is because they're not skilled or because uh, they don't know what they're doing. Again, I understand some of the wisdom. Yes, if you teach a person to fish, they'll never go hungry. I understand the spirit of the saint. But when you take that and you sort of, and again, both in those cases of both of these sayings, basically my problem is that people take sort of the, 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 the truth, the seeming truth in those sayings and use it as a justification of not going out of their way to help people in need. And that's the problem, is that you're using this man-made wisdom to keep you from fulfilling what the Bible calls us to do, which is to help the needy. And the thing is that there's no, like the Bible doesn't give us any conditions as to help the needy. It just tells us to go do it. It doesn't say like, hey, if this person has tried really hard, if this person has made all the right mistakes and it just just so happened that they they were unlucky, it doesn't say any of that stuff. It says, see a person in need, help a person in need, like help the needy, feed the poor, you know, uplift the downtrodden. Like that's what the Bible calls us to do. And and again, I think in, in our society, as we navigate the world, there's a lot of times that we put our wisdom over the wisdom of God and it just doesn't work. And it makes, it makes, I think when, especially when there's a big group of Christians who sort of adhere to these kind of things, it makes us look really bad. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it it goes all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible where God created this amazing place and populated it with uh, trees and vegetation and flowering plants and made this amazing garden filled the oceans with uh, animals and fish and uh, creatures that are walking on it and birds flying through the air. And he puts man in the middle of it and says, everything here you're in charge of. And I want you to do it according to the way that I've done it, that, that you are created in my image. You are created to continue the work that I began, that I started things And I got the ball rolling and I want you to continue it. And I want you to make this place amazing and make it great. And at the same time, you have a choice 
to follow me and follow that example, or you can decide it for yourself. And that choice is represented with the, the tree and God points to it and says, I don't want you to do it. I do not want you to eat from that tree. And if you do, as the serpent tells us later on, you'll, you'll know right and wrong. And, and he paints it in a very different light than what the way that God paints it. But what ends up happening is they decide right and wrong for themselves. They decide that the way that they know how to do things is better than the way that God knows how to do things. And they set humanity off on a course and a trajectory that we've been unable to fix by ourselves. And the whole story of the Bible has been again and again, we mankind are unable to fix this problem on our own. And we try and we try and come up with ways to fix it. And even the men who were leading God's people, they were unable to do it. And we said, you know, you know what we really need here, God, we really need a king. We need a king that's going to lead us and he's going to bring things back. And God says, no, (laughs) that's not what you need. And he puts in a king because (laughs) he's a good father and he, he gives us what we ask for, but also to kind of teach us, this is not what you need. And what do we see? We see that we don't know what we need. And we get guys in there who lead us further and further away from God's original plan. And then he tries to call us back again. He sends prophets and we say, nope, don't like what you're saying. We're not going to listen and we're going to kill you. And it's this whole right. time and time again that as you're reading through the Old Testament, you're thinking, man, is there any way for man and God to re reestablish their relationship, to restore it? And it isn't until Jesus comes and fixes it and is able to restore it and says, this is how I want you to live. And let me start again with you. Let me give you the directions on how to live with one another, how to create unity, how to forge relationships, how to remain one with me. And it's not built on the backs of principles and practicals, but it's of having a heart that pursues me, that wants to know me, that's going right. to learn about who I am, not did I do this today? Check. Did I do that today? Check. Did I do that today? Oh, I didn't. Mm, I'm no closer to God today. It, it, it's not based on any of that. That's born out of this attitude of I can, I can outthink my way to, to a relationship with God. And that doesn't work at all. It's not how you and I handle relationships right. with our wives. We don't say, did you do X, Y, and Z every day of our of our marriage. Oh, you missed a couple of days. I'm um, I'm done. Um, that's just not how it how it goes, you know. It's, I think it's really important, and and again, I think this is something that I struggle with constantly, and I think we all do if we're honest. That we really understand this because <clears throat> there's there's um. The risk of religion is very big. And let me let me explain what I mean by this. <clears throat> Somebody who's decided, you know what, I'm just going to be bad. Like, I don't care about God. I'm just going to be up, go out there and, and, and do bad things. At the very least, you know where that person stands, right? Like, you, you know, you go like, 
that person, they just don't want anything to do with morality. And cool. I mean, you sort of let him go. And I think what's dangerous, though, is sort of the, the religiosity and the alternative to that, which is to sort of choose degrees of wrong. And let me tell you what I mean. And just to, okay. to give you some biblical examples. For example, Joseph's brothers knew that murder was really bad. So they don't kill their brother, but they sell him into slavery. David sees this woman and is really attracted to her and sleeps with her and knows that he's done something really bad but can't bring himself to kill her husband because now she's pregnant. So what he does is that he sort of uses, uses his power to do something a little less wrong, at least in his eyes, which is like, hey, send him to the front lines. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, he dies. And so I think there's, there's this very dangerous mix in a religious person's life in that we don't fully want to be that person that says, forget God, I'm going to be immoral. But at the same time, we don't necessarily want to have the heart of God and be completely righteous either. So we create this, this, this degree of wrong mix, which deceives us into thinking that we're not being bad, but we're being bad. The bottom line is that selling your brother into slavery is just as wrong as murdering him. And sending some guy into the front lines for him to die right. is just the same as murder. And again, there's, all, there's these degrees of wrong that we play with constantly. And I just think it's, so, it's really dangerous, man. And I think Jesus, when he says like, hey, it's not what comes into your body. It just isn't. It's, it's what comes. And, and again, I think the beauty of the gospel is that it is the only thing that addresses what's inside, that Jesus renews, renews us from within, that he gives us a new heart, right? And mm -hmm. really, it's our only hope. It is our only hope because trying to be righteous and sort of trying to seem religious and choosing between good and this degree of wrong Man, it just gets us into yeah. places that are really weird. Yeah. Uh, it's, it, it's so easy to try and, and, and rationalize our way out of some of these situations. And you start building like hedges around, around yourself to say, okay, um, I don't want to break that rule. And so I'm going to do all these extra things. And, and your behavior starts to really take on a very different kind of feel. And you start to move away from this heart that Jesus wanted you to have in pursuit of having a heart for Jesus. And it's really weird. Like I'm, I'm thinking of specifically my experiences um, in growing up and, and going to church. One of the big verses that we always read and talked about was Ephesians 5.3. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper 
for goal for God's holy people. And so we started doing things in our characters and putting out these rules that said, all right, this is how God wants us to live. He doesn't want us to, to have any sexual immorality, not only no sexual immorality, but not even a hint of sexual immorality. There shouldn't even be a, a whiff of it that you should be so pure that when people walk by you, there's nothing that is happening that would make them think, you know what, that guy and that girl right there, I'll bet they're having sex. I'll bet they're doing it. <laughs> Man, I caught a, a big hint right. off of that couple. Um, <laughs> but, uh, so let's do some things that would not give anybody a hint. And so you talk about double dates. Not only is dating not in the Bible, but double dates are definitely not in the Bible. <laughs> but we came up with it as a way to preserve that purity, that that um, to give people the the confidence that that there's no sexual immorality going on here. And right there, it was more about the impression that was given necessarily than what was going on inside that double dates do nothing for lust. I mean, if, if you're in a situation and your mind starts to wander, then there's nothing. It doesn't matter if you are out with a thousand other people. Um, right. But we still put in the, into place this, this rule about double dates. And now don't get me wrong. I think double dates are great. I think they're very smart. I think they're a great thing to do. And I encourage people to do it um, for a whole host of reasons. And we could talk about that yeah. for a while, but that's not what we're here to talk about. Right. We're not discouraging anybody from cautious, being cautious. Wise, um, not walking or wading into dangerous waters. Exactly. But we've come up with all these other rules, you know, no driving alone in the car with somebody of the opposite sex. Um, don't be together past midnight. Um, I do think that that's a, a good one because uh, it just nothing happens after midnight. That's good. Um, <laughs> nothing good um, happens after I mean, midnight. All the, all the <laughs> country songs about walking after midnight, you know, nothing good. Just all kinds of heart pain and, and just. <laughs> um, uh, and definitely no roommates of the opposite sex nothing to give anybody the, the impression that what is going on behind those doors is something that is less than pure. And so those are good things to right. do, but it doesn't address the heart. It doesn't get to the heart. Um, Correct. So shouldn't be any kind of impurity. And so we're not watching rated R movies. Um, we always had big discussions about the clothes that we wear. Now, I think that's very important. I think it's incredibly important. But are we getting to the heart of, of impurity? And let's address this. Or we put more emphasis on how, how short is too short? How much is too much? Um, is that more right. important than talking about the heart of purity? <laughs> One of my favorite stories... Um, when I was in college, uh, we had a, a, a party and somebody had prepared some chicken wings 
and they prepared them using hot wing sauce from Hooters restaurant. Now, I've never <laughs> been to Hooters, and so I don't know the quality of their wings, but apparently they're phenomenal. And so there's nothing even on the packaging that is gay or anything. It just says Hooters. Right, it just says Hooters. And one of my friends from across the room sees somebody else with a bottle of Hooters hot wing sauce, yells out over the music and over <laughs> oh the God. people, what are you doing? <laughs> and basically stopped the party cold because this guy was eating chicken wings oh no. covered in, in Hooters hot wing sauce. Hooters sauce, yeah. And... <laughs> That is a great story. I mean, not story. as good as some of the ones that you've told about Mexican witch doctors, but not bad. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I, I mean, you you think about some of these things that, that we say and that we do, and you go, guys, are we missing the point completely? And sure, you end up driving people away, I think, unintentionally. Um because they feel like their lives are micromanaged because there's all these different rules and I didn't know how to play the game right. Um, and it, you know, it's a shame right. that, that people's faith has been um, uh, diminished and harmed because of these man-made rules that we've come up with that don't necessarily address the main topic. Um, we want to stay so far away from breaking this, this rule of God's that we're going to, uh, chastise you when you start to even get close. Um, you know, and you right. get yourself in a situation where, look, this girl, her car broke down. I had to give her a ride and it was after midnight, you know, we worked together right, right, waiting right. tables and no. You can't do that. You go, come on, this is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, it's those kinds of things that we do to ourselves rather than pursuing the heart. What is the heart of God? Well, the heart of God, as we see many times, is to heal and to, to heal people on the Sabbath. That's doing work. That's going against those, those rules right. because you're missing the point. The point is about healing the point is about unity. It's about taking care of other people. It's about bringing people in and showing them love unconditionally, making people feel safe and taken care of. And we can so easily stop doing right. that um, for the sake of what makes us feel comfortable most of the time. <clears throat> right. And let me, let me just for, for our audience, let me make sure that I clarify something. We're not saying that you shouldn't go out on double dates or again, that you shouldn't be cautious with some of these things. What we are saying is that when you take these, these rules, again, very wise, going on a double date, great idea. Not uh, being with a girl past midnight, great idea having conversations about what we wear. Great idea. But when we use those things as a replacement for the actual yeah. transformation of our hearts, yeah. it just doesn't work. 
because you take those rules away and we're still the same man. And the point of Christianity and our relationship with Christ is that he makes us into a different person. So when you combine doing some of these things that, again, that are cautious and wise with the transformation that the spirit and Christ provides, then you grow. And all of a sudden, say, for example, and and this, this would be the case for me, I didn't grow up in a religious household. My early teenage years uh, were filled with a lot of promiscuity and woman. And obviously, when I, became, when I was a young Christian, I myself put a lot of fences and boundaries around me. But I can tell you for a fact that I'm not the same person in a, in a lust, desire for women, character, whatever, than I was when I was 19 years old when I became a Christian, I'm not the same person. God has transformed me in ways that I times don't even recognize. And so I've, I've taken a lot of those fences away. Again, not because I think I'm this brave soul and nothing affects me anymore, but because literally God has transformed me. And that goes for stuff like lust and sexuality as it goes for many things. And let me say this for the other side of this transaction, which I think you brought up, uh, Ryan, and I just wanted to add something really quick. One of the ugliest ways that what we are talking about rears its ugly head is when we, we deal with other people's sin. And when we try to address shortcomings in other people, many times we make it about the rules. And we don't even get to the heart of the matter. And say, for example, again, to, to even sort of bring up a situation like mine, say that, that somebody is uh, a, a new convert, a new disciple, right? And one of their things is they were super flirtatious when they were in the world. And so you see this guy interact with all these girls and some of that flirting just comes out because this guy is a baby Christian. And so you go, and I've seen this many times where you go at this person and you just like nail him with all these superficial things like don't do this. And you shouldn't talk to the girl like that. And, and, you know, you shouldn't be in that corner by yourself. And what were you thinking? And all this other stuff. And we never, we never get to the heart. We never get to, like, hey, maybe this guy, you know, had a horrible upbringing and this is how he found security. And But we never get to that point where, like, we address deeper stuff because we're addressing all yeah. of this surface stuff. And I think even I think this is this is true for our lives. And as we sort of make decisions and try to be righteous and all this stuff, but I think even as we help other people. This is something that we need to be conscious of because the point is, is, is that God transforms us. And a lot of times we don't get to that and we don't help other people with that because we're so concerned about these rules. Yeah. And these superficial a lot of those things. seem to be shortcuts to what really takes a long time. You know, I've got, I got a three-year-old that I treat differently now than I did when she was one-year-old. Um, I, I'm not worried about her putting things in her mouth and swallowing them. And so I let her play 
in different ways now than I did when she was one. And I'll let her do things in different ways when she's five and when she's 10 and when she's 20. Um, I won't let her date until she's about 30. That won't change. Right. Absolutely. As you should, um, as you should, but, uh, you know, other things I'll let her do, um, you know, drive and, and play with knives and vote, um, but not date. Right. Um, <laughs> um, that's right. But I think that sometimes we forget that changing the human heart, it's not an overnight thing and it takes time. It takes patience. It takes getting into the heart and figuring out where's the heart and let me help you mold it or push it in a certain way. And sometimes my, my role or your role is, is simply to provide a little seed in, in the right area. Sometimes that role is to, to give it some water or to drop some fertilizer on it. Um, rarely is it our job to see the process from beginning to end. That just doesn't typically happen um, because then it, right. then it becomes about us rather than about God and God making it grow. Um, and so we also can't put the burden of somebody changing on ourselves that my role is, is to be, um, right. is to sow the seed. God makes it grow. Um, but Paul talks about, um, he built as an expert builder. Um, but he, he also identified other disciples as having different roles. Um, and, uh, I, I think that we can't miss that as well, that it's, it's not a quick business. Um, and putting some of these rules into place, try to give us a shortcut that it's about growing in a relationship with God. It's about understanding his heart for him and for other people and letting that drive us rather than uh, a set of circumscribed laws. What do I want to say here? Cause I feel like this has been a really good, I think I feel very refreshed by this conversation, to be honest with you. I think uh, hopefully a lot of people listening to us um, are encouraged by this. I feel especially to now. And I think, <clears throat> sorry, this is something that I, I'm, uh, I touched on the, in the video. We, we live in such a, um, such a divided world in, in relation to, again, to all of these human measures of righteousness. We live in a super loaded political climate in which like being one or being the other means that you're, that you're the devil. Uh, having an opinion means that you're the devil. Having the different opinion also means that you're the devil. And we, we are just in such a mess of conflict and even people that are, that I think even people that go to the same churches and uh, otherwise would really love and enjoy each other. We live in a climate in which we're getting into arguments for a, a series of things. And I think what we're talking about is so important in this climate because ultimately what we're talking about is really mm -hmm. pursuing the heart of God and no matter where you stand politically, no matter where you stand as far as like your maturity in Christ, no matter where you stand in any of these things, none of us have achieved right. perfection in that sense. And all of us are seeking to be transformed by the Spirit. All of us are seeking to be transformed by Christ. 
And I think when we really make Christianity about what God calls us to be and not, again, not these superficial human traditions of like, this is what it means to be a Christian. When we really go by the Bible, when we really pursue transformation, when we really surrender to Christ, I think that's really when our light shines. Um, First Thessalonians 4.11 says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you. And focusing on, on our relationship with God without making a big show of it. Um, at the same time, being aware of yeah. where is my heart? And is my heart pursuing the heart of God or is it trying to, is it living by the, the rules that somebody else came up with or am I creating my own rules that help me feel better? I think it really emphasizes and reemphasizes the point of we got to be studying our Bibles more and more. We got to be getting deeper with the way that we study our Bibles that, that we can't just coast we can't just be going over the notes right. from a Sunday sermon. You know, the Bereans took what Paul said and studied it and challenged it and tested it to make sure that it was true. Uh, that means not only were they going over what he said and reviewing what he said, but that they were, they were comparing it to what the Bible says and what the scriptures said and getting back to the Bible not what a commentary told us, not what a couple of uh, jokers who, who run a podcast uh, came up with, um, uh, nothing that, <laughs> that your buddy or your pastor told you, but, but really what the Bible says um, and focusing on that right. and letting it transform our hearts, letting it transform us from the inside out through study and through prayer. Amen. And on that note, it's a perfect place to end this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we do want to remind you that this is a crowdfunded effort. And for those of you listening who support us, thank you very much. We really appreciate your support. Uh, if you'd like to support us, you can do so by going to uh, patreon.com forward slash ether MMC. And also you can follow us on social media. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you on the next one. It will